0: welcome back to episode three of the kindred spirits book club where two grown-ass ladies geek out about anne of green gables i'm reagan duffy and i'm joined by my co-host and bosom friend kelly Gurner. and this week we're going to continue our review of the major plot points of anne of green gables
1: So we left off when Anne and Diana surprised Diana's Aunt Josephine by jumping on her while she was sleeping. Terrible for Aunt Josephine, but somehow even worse for Anne and Diana, who were so looking forward to a slumber party in the spare room. This week, we're gonna pick up with some more of Anne's misadventures, including the epic hair dyeing incident, and we're gonna end with one of the most tragic deaths in all of literature, as far as we are concerned. But before we get into it, what is the Anne quote of the week?
0: So this quote comes from early on in this section of the books. One June evening, when the orchards were pink-blossomed again, when the frogs were singing silverly sweet in the marshes about the lake of shining waters, and the air was full of the savor of clover fields and balsamic fir woods, Anne was sitting by her gable window. She had been studying her lessons, but it had grown too dark to see the book. So she had fallen into wide-eyed reverie, Looking out past the boughs of the Snow Queen, once more bestarred with its tufts of blossom. In all essential respects, the little gabled chamber was unchanged. The walls were as white, the pincushion as hard, the chairs as stiffly and yellowly upright as ever. Yet the whole character of the room was altered. It was full of a new, vital, pulsing personality that seemed to pervade it and to be quite independent of schoolgirl books and dresses and ribbons, and even of the cracked blue jug full of apple blossoms on the table. It was as if all the dreams, sleeping and waking, of its vivid occupant had taken a visible, although unmaterial, form and had tapestried the bare room with splendid, filmy tissues of rainbow and moonshine.
1: I love this quote. I love it, of course, for the poetry, but I also think that it's an intriguing sort of waypoint. It's a guide to both where we've come from and where we're going. So this quote, as Reagan said, is at the beginning of chapter 20, which is about midway through Anne of Green Gables, and it confirms what the readers already know, Anne is now integrated into Green Gables. She's a part of this room, she's a part of this house, she's a part of this place as much as Marilla and Matthew are. This is her home and it's at this point in the book that she has truly taken up her mantle as Anne of Green Gables. And I think even beyond that, this is a paragraph where Maud is subtly signaling to the readers that Anne is sort of shifting between childhood and young womanhood. She is still the schoolgirl with her ribbons and pinafores, but she also has her eyes fixed to the future out past the boughs of the Snow Queen. It is a fabulous passage for all its poetry and pretty language. It's also doing the hard work of orienting the reader to exactly where Anne finds herself at this point in time, leaving her
0: girlhood, entering young womanhood,
1: and always very much a part of Green Gables.
0: You know, one of the things I really love about Maud's writing is how I find new things in it over time. And this passage is a really excellent example of it. When I was a kid, I don't know if this paragraph would have resonated with me. I probably would have skimmed right past it in order to get to action. But as I grew, I not only appreciated the poetry, I mean, a line like It had tapestried the bare room with splendid filmy tissues of rainbow and moonshine, but also a poignancy in remembering some of my own liminal summers, that time between childhood and womanhood when you're teetering back and forth between those two states, which is scary and exhilarating at the same time. And I love what it says about how integral Anne has become to Green Gables by this point. From the beginning of the book, we've known how much Anne needed a home. She needed stability and kindness and room to be a child. But this passage also highlights how much Green Gables and its inhabitants needed her. She brought life into this house and brought light to two people who were somewhat stuck in loneliness. And I think that's the magic of Anne. She brings that light with her everywhere she goes and to everyone she meets
1: oh absolutely
0: so why don't we move into our plot recap here in this second half of the book even though Anne is growing up there's still plenty of foibles along the way starting right here with chapter 20. Anne manages to scare herself silly by imagining there are malevolent ghosts in the wooded area between (laughs) green gables and barry's farm and a simple errand to diana's house for an apron pattern becomes a dramatic encounter with the spirit world. She and Diana have told each other such scary ghost stories about what they have now renamed the haunted wood that Anne gotten to the point where she's genuinely frightened herself. Marilla is not having any of this nonsense. She makes Anne go anyway, but it's a great (laughs) example that even though Anne might be growing up, her imagination is still just as strong as ever.
1: Now we're winding down toward the end of the school year, and Mr. Phillips, their schoolmaster, is leaving the school. Thank goodness we hate Mr. Phillips. Anne is sympathetic enough that she got caught up in all the crying about his leaving amongst the other girls, but she personally, like me and Reagan, are not particularly sorry to see him go. Another change in the wind is the arrival of a new minister and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Allen, in Avonlea. They are young and enthusiastic, and Anne is quickly enamored of Mrs. Allen, declaring her a kindred spirit. Mrs. Allen is the kind of teacher who invites questions in Sunday school, and Anne's spiritual education grows under her kindness. Marilla invites Mr. and Mrs. Allen to tea, and Anne is so excited to make a cake for her and show off her improving baking skills. It's an important enough experience to have the new minister and his wife over for tea that Anne and Marilla spend two whole days cooking and baking to prepare for it. Anne is even having nightmares of her layer cake not going well. Anne's cake looks beautiful and she's wild with happiness to imagine Mrs. Allen enjoying it. Anne manipulates Marilla a little into letting her decorate the table, practical Marilla not being prone to centerpieces of roses, but it does turn out beautifully. Overall, the tea goes very well, and even Matthew is silently in attendance. But then, as Mrs. Allen takes a bite of Anne's cake, she makes a strange face, although to her credit, she gamely keeps eating.
0: She's a minister's wife. Right. (laughs) She's probably done this
1: before. This goes with the territory. (laughs) So Marilla quickly twigs to something being wrong and she tries the cake herself. It is truly terrible and is mortified. And it turns out that instead of using vanilla to flavor the cake, she had
0: used anodyne liniment.
1: Let's be real, I don't know what that is, but it sounds awful. It doesn't sound like vanilla. It sounds, it like, sounds vanilla. like it
0: smells terrible, like some sort of homemade concoction that you would like rub on your chest. Like, you know what? Oh yeah, Early that Vicks is probably what it rug. is. I bet it's the version of Vicks Vapor Rub. It's
1: Vicks. She put mm-hmm. Vicks in the cake instead of vanilla. Ugh. <laughs> so as it turned out, Marilla had broken a liniment bottle and used an old vanilla bottle to hold the residue. And Marilla is thinking no one could ever possibly mistake the two because they smell so wildly different. But what no one realized is that when Anne was making the cake, she had a cold and wasn't able to smell it. So she's distraught, she runs off to her room crying, and then Mrs. Allen proves she's worthy of the title of kindred spirit by following Anne to her room to reassure her that anyone could have made such a mistake. Mrs. Allen gracefully shifts focus and encourages Anne to show off her flower garden. And so, of course, the evening ends happily.
0: I feel so bad for Anne here. This mistake was really not her fault at all.
1: No, Marilla, what were you thinking switching the bottles?
0: Seriously, Marilla has a labeling problem. Get this woman <laughs> a P-touch labeler. I mean, between the raspberry cordial and wine incident, and now we've got- did they have and like and little Lilla?
1: chalkboards that they hung on everything? That is what farmhouse decor has led me to believe.
0: I thought so. <laughs> I feel so deeply for her. I can really relate to that feeling of just really wanting to impress a mentor, to impress someone you look up to and have a little bit of a crush on. Or a hero it, worship. Yeah, a hero worship crush. Absolutely. Only to have it fall to pieces around you. She has such a reputation for being flighty and daydreamy, and that's how she's made so many silly errors before, that here's a moment where she was trying so hard to focus and stay on task and do everything just right, and she was derailed by something that wasn't even her fault, and it still turned out badly. But I do love that Marilla and Mrs. Allen are both full of kindness and understanding and to, you know, see that support and encouragement of her.
1: I will say the good thing for Marilla is that she will always own her part in this. Yes, right? Just as with the Amethyst brooch, when she was not too big or too proud to say, Well, now that was my mistake. Here, too, she says, Okay, I kind of set you up for disaster here. So, you know, and in that way, she sets a lovely example for Anne as well about how to be graceful in these kind of uncomfortable and embarrassing circumstances. Yes. Um, And then I think that Anne's efforts with the cake, even though they sort of ended disgustingly, (laughs) (laughs) but I think the fact that she was so committed and tried so hard and really did have a lovely cake and overall a lovely visit, this is all part of that maturation that we start to see in this part of the book. More and more of Anne's sort of misadventures have less to do with her being careless or you know, or her te- or her temper running away fr- from her, and have more to do with just sort of circumstances because she's showing herself to be a competent and cons- and conscientious girl.
0: Yes, and one who can bounce back an awful lot quicker than she used to. That is definitely true. Yeah, the resiliency is there as well. On to our next chapter. Diana invites all the Avonlea girls over to her house for a picnic after Sunday school, and as girls this age tend to do, they are entertaining themselves by daring each other, each dare escalating in danger. And this is where we get to see a little bit more of the personalities of some of the other Avonlea girls, particularly Josie Pye, with whom Anne will share a kind of rivalry over the years, sometimes friendly, but often antagonistic. The Pye family is one of those families in Avonlea, which is everyone knows about as kind of thorns in everybody's sides, but also are rather prominent. So Josie is very dismissive of the game of dares and she challenges the girls to do something truly brave, read truly dangerous, like (laughs) walk the Ridge pole of the Barry's kitchen roof. So Josie is also doing something right here. She's deliberately baiting, particularly Anne.
1: Yeah. She knows that Anne is a competitive girl And as the dares are kind of escalating, Josie is like, okay, I see a way to, you know, bring some of her malicious spirit into it.
0: Right. And a way to win. Mm -hmm. Because either way, either she sets this dare and nobody takes it. And then she wins. And then exactly she wins. Or uh, somebody (laughs) tries it and Josie's still going to win. So, and... (laughs) <laughs> is not one to let bait be untaken so she <laughs> rises to the challenge and climbs up on the roof to walk the ridgepole. after just a few steps she slips and falls and breaks her ankle matthew and marilla are truly terrified and this moment really solidifies how much they care for Anne and how fully they've embraced their roles as her parents and caretakers Anne has to spend most of the summer on bed rest and that way she stays mostly out of trouble and actually starts school a little later in the fall as she's still healing. So
1: once Anne returns to school, the Avonlea school children are going to put on a Christmas concert as a fundraiser. Anne and her friends are rehearsing a recitation of the Fairy Queen at Green Gables. And Matthew walks through the kitchen and notices that Anne's dress is plainer than the other girls. He takes it upon himself to buy her a dress with puffed sleeves, which is consistent with the fashions of the time and probably what the other little girls were wearing. And of course, as we know, it is also Anne's dearest wish to have a truly pretty dress. Matthew decides to be sly and not buy the dress in Avonlea, but instead to go to the nearby town Carmody to buy the dress. Then he makes the somewhat critical error of choosing the store based on the likelihood that he will be able to make the purchase without speaking to a woman, Matthew being deathly afraid of talking to women. Um, And he winds up at some kind of general store, which apparently sells everything. This whole thing was so confusing to me reading this in the 80s. Like the idea that you could go to the same store and buy sugar and gardening equipment and a dress just completely blew my mind.
0: Absolutely. It's Target.
1: I guess it is Target. (laughs) I guess it is Target. Now mean, I'm more comfortable. You can buy with this all of
0: those things at Target today. I that is true. Did.
1: Yeah, we literally could. So unfortunately, though, for Shy Matthew, as he wanders into the, the general store, he finds that there is a woman clerk and he sort of gets lost in his order, confusedly asked to purchase 20 pounds of brown sugar and a garden rake in the middle of winter before beating a hasty retreat out of there. So... <laughs> <laughs> Not Matthew's finest moment. No. <laughs> his shyness got the better of his good intentions. He is able to regroup and he asks Mrs. Rachel Lynn to help. Mrs. Rachel, like all good town busybodies, is only too pleased to be involved and she offers to make Anne's dress herself, opining, of course, that Marilla keeps Anne in clothes that are far too plain. Mrs. Rachel chooses a lovely brown fabric and a fashionable pattern and makes Anne a dress with perfectly puffed sleeves. Anne is beyond delighted to receive the dress and she wears it to the Christmas concert. Marilla is vaguely peeved at winding up with 20 pounds of brown sugar and honestly we can't blame her.
0: My favorite part is she's like honestly brown sugar what am I even going to use that for? And I think there's like
1: some other digression about how it's not even like the brand that she uses or like her preferred style of brown sugar. The whole thing was so funny. Um, This truly is one of the like iconic moments in Anne of Green Gables. Anyway, the Avonlea School's Christmas concert is a success. And as another sort of nice moment and a nod to Marilla and Matthews accepting their role in Anne's life, you can see that they are just glowing with pride in her.
0: I love it. I love this chapter so much. Except, and I know this is true for you, a brown dress, I could just never picture how a brown dress could be so pretty and fashionable. I mean, at the time, you know, we growing up, it was all like Laura Ashley florals and pastels. And even, yeah, but brown brown would never be a color you'd associate with a party dress
1: yeah we grew up in peak pastels and the idea that like a brown dress could be the loveliest dress anyone ever saw that was mind-boggling that was almost as mind-boggling to me as the store that sold everything in the yeah
0: I mean I still even have a little bit of a hard time seeing it I guess but I think what Mrs. Rachel is going for is playing with Anne's natural beauty where she's uh, got this classic ginger red hair and maybe it. she just really glows and probably very fair creamy yeah. skin that glows against kind of browns and autumn colors and i'm sure she used a very like special fabric with some shine or depth to it so she makes a dress that not only is fashionable but also is particular to Anne. And since Anne is
1: such like a striking looking girl, um, you have more descriptions of her in comparison to the other girls sort of as the book goes on, it probably made her feel incredibly special to have something that was tailored just particularly to her. Yeah. Um, I have to say, though, so because we were talking about how... um, we both sort of stumbled in our minds picturing this like incredibly beautiful brown dress when we read this book as young readers. Um, I did go ahead and I Googled brown puff sleeve dresses just for my own sort of um, entertainment. And I have to tell you in the summer of 2022, you can find a flowy brown dress with puff sleeves pretty much anywhere you want to. <laughs> I found- Including Target. Puff- Yeah. Literally Target. Yes. You can go to the store that has everything. You go to the store that has everything. Buy 20 pounds of brown sugar, garden rake, and a brown dress with puff sleeves right now, summer 2022. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I found them at Madewell, Everlane, Nordstrom. Yeah. This was mind boggling to my childhood self, but I definitely, you know, it's definitely
0: on trend now. Now we are moving into learning about Anne's new teacher who took over from Mr. Phillips. So the new teacher is Miss Stacy and her teaching methods are much more innovative than Mr. Phillips. Mr. Phillips was of the old school, rote memorization, um, tidy and quiet, well-disciplined schoolroom. Lines on the slates. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Miss Stacy is doing creative writing with her students. She encourages questions and, learning in a more back and forth and experimental manner. And of course, Anne is just lapping it up. She's always loved to learn, even when the teaching was very dry. And now with a teacher who is making learning interesting and exciting, Anne is just flourishing. So she loves creative writing. Marilla and Mrs. Rachel are a little suspicious of such a thing, but the chance for Anne to flex her imagination and actually be rewarded for it just makes school divine for her. So Anne and Diana and their friends Ruby and Jane decide to cultivate their imaginations and start a story club. They come up with amazing noms de plume and is Rosamund Montmorency. Okay, Kelly, you try that one.
1: Um, Okay, I pronounced it Rosamund Montmorency. Say that again, Rosamond Montmorency.
0: Rosamond Montmorency,
1: which is really a mouthful, but I would expect nothing less from a girl who, you know, named me Cordelia Geraldine and then Cordelia.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So they write tales full of romance and death. They're very into things being tragic and crying buckets of tears over each right. other's <laughs> stories. <laughs> Anne also admits to Marilla that she mostly. Is the one coming up with all the ideas and telling the other girls what to write? She has enough ideas for all of them. I, I
1: like this chapter so much. It's, I mean, it's very funny, first of all. And you get to see a little bit more of the other girls' personality, not just Anna and Diana, but also their friends, uh, Ruby and Jane. It also just really shows, as you were sort of pointing out, the difference in how you're going to approach your education and the difference in how you're going to feel about learning. If you have a teacher who's meeting you where you're at, instead of having a teacher who, who was going to punish her for being overly imaginative and for having too much personality. Now she has someone who has found a way to channel that into like, well, okay, let's practice um, writing.
0: Yeah. And I think that's true for any of us. When we look back over our educational experiences. We all had a teacher who maybe took a subject that we weren't necessarily interested in or passionate about, but with their passion and with their creativity and their excellent teaching, we came to love the subject or a teacher who brought out the best in us, made us feel seen, made us feel intelligent, made us feel challenged in a way that helped us grow as students and as people that's the power of a great teacher
1: and it's really special that Anne has found this person in miss stacy and we see over the next several chapters how this really changes the trajectory of Anne's life mm-hmm.
0: and when i it is true for Anne just like it's true for all children when she is accepted when she is encouraged to be who she is you can see how much she just blossoms
1: yeah no it's it's really true so this is this sort of marks uh, like a sea change where Anne has these like wonderful adults in her life and these mentors um not just uh miss stacy but also mrs allen and and you see her becoming you know closer and having even a more congenial relationship with mrs rachel like her world is expanding beyond just matthew and marilla um, and she's finding other kindred spirits out there So speaking of Marilla, one early spring evening, she's walking back to Green Gables and noticing the first signs of spring, anticipating a warm fire and the tea that Anne will have prepared for her when she gets home. But when she arrives, there's no fire, no tea, and worryingly, no Anne. Marilla eventually finds Anne sobbing in her room and she refuses to let Marilla look at her. Marilla, of course, is deeply concerned. She wonders if Anne is sick or injured, only to find out that in Marilla's absence, Anne purchased hair dye from a traveling salesman and dyed her hair with predictably disastrous results. Poor Anne. (laughs) The peddler had assured Anne that she would be able to dye her red hair a rich, deep black, but in fact, Anne's hair has turned green.
0: Oh, Marilla
1: and Anne try to wash the dye out, but there's nothing to do but cut Anne's hair short, which Anne (laughs) tragically accepts as punishment for her vanity. I have to say, I don't know about you, Regan, but this is a scene that I really, really understood as an adolescent wanting to change what you perceive to be, like, your defining physical flaw Uh so badly that you were willing to, like, cause yourself some measure of harm, it's, it's a funny scene, right? Unintentionally green hair is always funny. Don't get me wrong. It's yes. a funny scene. And it's one of the most iconic moments in Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> but as a grown up, I also see the tragedy in it a little bit. Yeah. Um. I think about like our childhoods and how prevalent diet pills and like harsh skincare chemicals were when we were growing up because we were all trying so hard to be thin and have perfectly clear skin. And we just ended up hurting ourselves, you know, just like Anne and her beautiful red hair, we were beautiful girls too, even though we didn't always believe it.
0: That's that moment of tragedy, right? Anne has really decided that red hair is not only a major flaw for her, it is it is sort of the reason why she's not lovable. And it's it's the thing that has to go. It just breaks your heart to see that she was so desperate to do such a thing I have to tell you this scene forever frightened me about dying my hair. Oh, yeah. So I grew up with my mom is a hair care purist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. No heat on her hair, no dyes, certainly no perms or chemical straighteners of any sort, right? Like she's very big into hair health and that's how we were raised. Yeah. So already I was suspicious of any kind of permanent hair dye. And this just confirmed it like, Oh no, this could go wrong. And you will have no choice, but to cut your hair off. (laughs) So I never, I never dyed my hair. Even to this day, I haven't ever done any permanent. I got highlights once. That's it. That's the, that's the bulk of my like permanent hair. I did a lot of those like those temporary rinses that like wash out in eight to 10 shampoo. Okay.
1: I was going to ask about that particularly because I feel like that was such a hallmark of our adolescence. Yes. Like those sort of like two week dyes where you could yes. just kind of put it over top your, your natural hair and it would wash out. I was like the queen of those.
0: My sister and I used to help each other do it all the time. That was one of the things we did like in high school or when I'd come home from college is we would often like be helping each other. Did you guys that. ever
1: do the thing where you dyed your hair with Kool-Aid?
0: My hair is too dark. Oh, okay. It I did show. that quite a lot.
1: <laughs> I have I have naturally light hair, and so right, especially in the summer when it got when it got highlighted by the sun, then you just rub a little concentrated Kool Aid on it, and then you have cool purple streaks too. Yep. Add nope. to that the chlorine from the community pool, and it was like a
0: you were already you. halfway to green hair,
1: early '90s mermaid look right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Isn't this the curse, though, of adulthood as we all look back on our teenagehood and realize how, how beautiful and lovely and perfect we were yes, and we didn't know it?
1: Exactly. Oh, It's so true.
0: After Anne recovers somewhat from her hair dyeing experience. And now much... rocking a chic little bob. Exactly. <laughs> and much like chastened by it, really trying to yeah. keep her vanity in check. It is only natural that Story Club should evolve into a kind of drama club. If you have (laughs) Anne involved, of course it did. So Anne, Diana, Ruby, and Jane embark on reenacting a favorite scene from Tennyson. Anne protests that she cannot play Lady Elaine, who is described as having golden hair, but the other girls, who are sensible, let's be honest, refuse to play dead and float across the lake of shining waters in a rowboat so Anne must take up the role Anne does not let a little thing like a rowboat get in the way of committing to her role I think this is so funny that the
1: other girls just sort of like bail on this for Anne like they're all on board they all want to reenact the scene but when it actually comes to like okay who's going to play dead and lie in this rowboat they're all like oh actually no I'm
0: good I know they're all like oh Ruby you're the prettiest and you have blonde hair and she's all like no like I'm I'm a no for that actually I well, oh. think it's also because, you
1: know, much like, um, Josie, uh, setting out the bait for the dare, like the other girls know that Anna's game for it. They're like, okay, we don't have to get in that rickety old boat.
0: <laughs> yep. That's an Ann moment. If they ever saw it, the Anne, Ann's going to do it. They send, the girls send Anne off with a romantic poetic goodbyes and she's covered with a shawl, a piano cover, I believe. Oh, that's um, right, it is someone's piano cover. Okay. Right, that's, that's somewhat, I guess, brocade. So it feels fancy. And um, they push the boat out into the pond and then the girls run down. They're going to kind of meet the boat where the current tends to wash it up to enact the next part of the scene. Anne is actually quite in her element, floating away, imagining herself as Lady Elaine in the time of King Arthur. <laughs> Until she realizes that her dress is getting wet and the boat is leaking, and the boat is leaking ever more quickly. She manages to climb out of the boat onto one of the piles that is holding up the bridge over Barry's Pond. And so she's stranded in the middle of Barry's Pond, clinging to the bridge. Uh, support waiting for her friends to find her however at the other end of Barry's pond the girls only see the boat drifting towards them going more and more underwater and they with no sign of Anne so they conclude that she is drowned and they run for help it does not occur to them to go back and look for Anne luckily for Anne Gilbert Blythe is rowing by and he rescues her Anne has this moment of debating whether or not she should allow herself to be rescued, trying to hold on to her dignity. She remains cold and haughty towards him, having still not forgiven him for the carrots incident. Gilbert even apologizes for calling her carrots and asks to be friends. Anne wavers, but that moment of feeling so deeply humiliated comes back to her, and she just refuses. Gilbert kind of huffs off. Uh, having given it his best shot and giving up the girls find Anne wet and bedraggled now and decide that Gilbert's rescue was the most romantic possible ending to the drama Anne is not having this at all she tells him she is done with romance she is not interested in being linked to Gilbert romantically at all I'm like, what is even Anne's deal when it comes to Gilbert? At this point, it
1: is just foolishness. He saved her from sinking in the pond.
0: Yeah, but Kelly, she vowed she would never talk to him again. She and oh, that's right. Anne mm-hmm. is not going to back down. So she kind of has backed herself into a corner, yeah. and won't even entertain the thought of softening towards him.
1: Sometime later. Diana's Aunt Josephine invites Anne and Diana to come visit her in Charlottetown, which is the capital city of the province of Prince Edward Island. Aunt Josephine is very wealthy and the girls are thrilled to get to stay in her sparest of spare rooms in her elegant mansion. Aunt Josephine is delighted to see Anne and compliments her on her appearance, which of course, Anne loves. Aunt Josephine notices that Anne is taller and so much better looking than the last time they met.
0: Which, what, a comp- what kind of compliment is that? You're so much better looking than you were.
1: Okay, it is kind of a backhanded compliment, but I think that Aunt Josephine knew from her previous relationship with Anne that Anne, you know, was sensitive about her looks and thinks of herself as plain. So for Aunt Josephine, and I almost think it's one of these things where you see how Aunt Josephine is a kindred spirit to Anne, because if she had said something like, oh, here you are pretty as ever, Anne would see that as fake but because she acknowledges like, hey, as you're growing up, you're getting prettier and prettier. Anne will accept that in a different way. Fair enough. So anyway, Aunt Josephine's house feels like a palace to Anne and Diana. There are velvet carpets and silk curtains, all of which sound very challenging to clean to me. And Anne realizes that it's almost lovelier to imagine those things than to actually experience them. Aunt Josephine takes Anne and Diana to an exhibition, which I was somewhat confused by. My best guess at this is it's some kind of a county fair crossed with like an arts and crafts fair um, because there's agricultural prizes, but there's also like lace displays. Okay. Um, (laughs) And then Aunt Josephine takes them to see an opera singer and they eat ice cream at 11 o'clock at night. And just the whole thing is this exciting whirlwind for Anne. And it's also a chance for Anne to compare this elegant and exciting city life to her quiet life in Avonlea. When she comes home, she ultimately tells Marilla that as much as she enjoyed the trip, she was glad to be home. And this just further confirms that Anne's place is at Green Gables.
0: And I really relate to Anne feeling a little let down when her dreams of elegant living come true, because they could never really live up to what you imagined in your mind. It's right? so true. Yes. Uh, you know, certainly I've always had those dreams about living in a castle or an elegant English country house. And when we went to Ireland a couple of years ago, we stayed in some castles and they were cool, but kind of disappointing in a way. You know, they're cold and they're drafty and and the steps are really steep and narrow and it's not quite the way you imagine it in your head or would see it in a movie.
1: We recently had a similar experience where we were staying at this beautiful country house in France. And I mean, it just looked incredible from the outside and it was beautiful. Actually, it was beautiful inside and out. I mean, there was a moat. It was crazy. There was a moat. There was a moat. Yeah. (laughs) It was the coldest, dampest place I've ever, I've ever been. I could not get warm for the two days we were there.
0: And I think there is also something to this idea of Anne has always had these very big dreams of elegance from her name to imagining, you know, the stories that she writes, which always feature heroines in dramatic situations and very rich heroes who drape their loves in jewels. So Anne's always had a taste for that kind of rich fantasy life. And so I love that she's, even at this age, she's realizing, you know, this was fun to experience, but this isn't what I want. This isn't the way I like to live. It doesn't don't feel actually like home to, to her. Mm-hmm. So, the trip to Charlottetown came not a moment too soon because Miss Stacy has decided to offer additional lessons for students who might be interested in applying to Queen's Academy in Charlottetown. Miss Stacy has gone to Green Gables in person to tell Marilla about the Queen's prep classes and to invite Anne to join. Marilla agrees and tells Anne. Anne is excited, of course, but worries that the cost is too steep for Matthew and Marilla. Marilla tells Anne that her education is worth it. And of course, Anne is elated. The other Avonlea students who, who will study to go to Queens are Anne's friends, Jane and Ruby, as well as Josie Pye, of course, Charlie Sloan, <laughs> Moody Spurgeon McPherson, which it's I love such, say, such
1: a crazy name, I swear.
0: And of course, Gilbert Blythe. Anne and Gilbert's rivalry rekindles. And whereas before it was maybe one-sided, Now Gilbert seems as determined to best Anne as she is to defeat him. I think before he was amused by it, and it was a very friendly rivalry to him. And now that Anne has so specifically spurned him, he's trying to one-up her. Sadly, Diana's parents do not let her take the additional classes, and Anne and Diana are Not separated, but they don't get to spend nearly as much time together after school, having free moments roaming about. Anne and the other Avonlea scholars study hard, and Anne decides to take the summers off from studying so she can relax and enjoy the last summer of her childhood. In fact, the doctor mentions to Marilla kind of in passing when he sees her that Anne is looking very thin And a little worn. She needs a good summer. She needs rest and sleep and relaxation. And Marilla is a little scared by this because she's come to love Anne so much. And so she really goes out of her way to make sure that Anne has all the freedom in that summer. Anne returns to school refreshed and ready to work. She continues to apply herself to her studies, spurred on by her rivalry with Gilbert. The Avonlea kids go to Charlottetown to sit for the exams and Josephine hosts the very nervous Anne. Ultimately, all the Avonlea students pass the Queen's entrance exam and Anne and Gilbert have tied for first place across the whole island. This section also foreshadows a little bit of Marilla's trouble with her eyesight and Matthew's heart trouble, signaling that as Anne grows up and begins to make her way in the world, the Cutverts are aging. I love this moment where Marilla tells Anne that of course they will pay for her education because we've seen how important Anne has become to Matthew and Marilla this is a big financial commitment and they're not wealthy people if you feel like the last couple chapters sections we've talked about summed up a lot very quickly it's kind of interesting how fast these chapters go the first half of the book covers Anne's first about year of At Green Gables. Mm -hmm. And then we get three chapters that basically cover her last two years of school and studies, and she has a great summer. And then she goes back and she studies some more. I think one reason Maude does that is because it mirrors sort of how time does pass very quickly in kind of a blur. And that when there aren't these really specific moments that stick out, it can all just feel like. All it's like the movie the montage. Same. Yeah. Yes, right? This is the montage of Anne studying and laughing with her friends and studying some more. Yeah,
1: all of Anne's sort of like scrapes early on in the book all come with this sort of big overarching problem of is this going to be the last straw for Anne? Is this going to be one bridge too far? And, you know, part of the tension and the conflict of the first half of the book is Trying to figure out, like, how secure is Anne in this house and with this family? And then, you know, by the time that we're about midway through the book, like, sort of, we started this uh, episode with that quote, you realize that now Anne is integrated in Green Gables. So we no longer have this conflict of, like, are Matthew and Marilla going to keep her? Yeah, they're going to keep her. And so now it's more just about what's going to happen to her next. You know, yeah. she's still Anne. So crazy stuff is going to happen. She's going to put liniment in the cake, she's going to dye her hair green. And those, you know, those moments will stick out to her in a big way, the way we always sort of remember our, you know, most emotional moments. So, but one, one place where Maude does pause to t- to take a breath is in um, the chapter about the hotel concert, which is, I think just one of the sweetest chapters in the latter half of this book, because it perfectly shows Anne on the cusp of womanhood. So the setup is that Anne is about to recite a poem at the White Sands Hotel, which is like a very fashionable destination. At first, she's very chill, very calm about it. She's had lots of experience with recitations and public speaking in Avonlea, having done all these, you know, various shows and debate club and all of these things. Um, Diana, who is very fashionable, helps her choose a beautiful dress, and Anne is wearing a strand of pearls that Matthew gave her and Anne and Diana are looking at themselves in the mirror and feeling very confident that Anne looks beautiful and that her performance will be well received. But then when Anne gets to the hotel, she sees all these stylish and elegant ladies in attendance and she begins to lose her nerve. She overhears a snobbish woman remark about country bumpkins and Anne feels small and insignificant in her plain white dress and her simple pearls in contrast to these women in their silks and their jewels. When Anne gets up to deliver her recitation, she has a moment of stage fright. Then she sees Gilbert's face in the audience. He's smiling a smile that Anne interpreted as triumphant and taunting, although Maud assures the reader that Gilbert was just happy to see Anne. Anne is spurred on by the rivalry between them, and she delivers a stirring performance. She's celebrated by everybody in attendance, even the women who previously intimidated her. At the audience's urging, she performs an encore, and then one of the women introduces her to all the impressive people who are there. After the dinner, looking out over the sea, Diana, Jane, and Anne regale each other with stories of their evening together. Diana told Anne that a man who watched her recite said that he'd like to paint Anne, she of the splendid Titian hair. Jane sighs over all the beautiful women and their impressive jewels, and Anne points out to the girls that they're as happy as queens, just as they are, 16 years old and full of imagination. Anne truly feels wealthy and privileged to live in a beautiful place surrounded by people who love her. She says, I'm quite content to be Anne of Green Gables with my string of pearl beads. I know Matthew gave me as much love with them as ever went with Madame the Pink Lady's jewels.
0: I love that so much. And I think that's where you see her maturity all of a sudden from the child who could only imagine jewels and wealth. And and Cordelia instead of Anne. Absolutely, to really feel like she's come into her own and she wouldn't change who she is or what she has. It's kind of a continuation of what she experienced with Miss Barry. And she went to yeah. a little bit of, oh, actually what I have is really lovely and I wouldn't trade it for anything else. And that's very mature. It's also such
1: a beautiful expression of gratitude. You know, I think we talk a lot now about how like the foundation of happiness or contentment is gratitude and being happy for the things you do have. And Anne is such a beautiful and genuine example of that. Mm -hmm. She's truly happiest knowing that she has a home where she is loved, being out in the beautiful natural world, being with her friends, imagining things, learning new things. She doesn't need ropes of diamonds to Mm -hmm. feel happy you know, she, she really is grateful for where she is and the things she does have.
0: The other thing I love in that chapter is when Diana relays that little moment about the person saying that he would love to paint Anne of the Titian hair Mm -hmm. and Diana doesn't know what Titian means. And Anne is like, oh, he means red. It's just plain red. (laughs) It's just plain red. But if you think about how far Anne has come from that 11 year old who, literally went to battle over being her, told red her hair hand was red is all like yeah he said it, my hair was red
1: oh it's so true and yeah titian hair is nicer than carrots but the meaning is the same
0: <laughs> yeah i mean just a few chapters ago this girl dyed her hair permanently green to get rid of the red and now she's at least it's not the favorite thing that somebody has said about her but she can kind of be like yep that's me and she has this sense of
1: being like a lovely young woman
0: and everybody else sees her as a lovely young woman it's nice that she is starting to see herself in that way too it is so after the triumph at the white sands concert Anne heads off to queen's academy in charlottetown so this is talk about a section that went quickly oh this is crazy Anne's. Whirlwind year at Queens is about three chapters. Ever ambitious and mindful of Marilla and Matthew's money has decided that instead of doing the two-year program, she's going to condense it and work twice as hard and finish it in one year instead of two. Queens seems to be a teacher training program that you come out of it with a certificate that allows you to teach. Gilbert also decides to do the same. The other Avonlea students are doing a more traditional two year track. Anne lives in a nice boarding house arranged by Aunt Josephine, as Aunt Josephine's house is too far from the academy. Anne is initially lonely and homesick in her boarding house, so much so that when she sees Josie Pye on the first day of school at the academy, she's actually happy to see her. Wild. Wild. Josie, Jane, Ruby, and Anne compare notes about their first day of Queens. Josie tells Anne all about the various scholarships and medals awarded to the best students at the end of this year's study. And Anne is inspired to work really hard possibly to win one of those awards. Gilbert is in several of her classes and continues to see him as a competitor, but the rivalry is cooled maybe with so many other folks around that are not. Invested in the Anne Gilbert story, I think maybe that was another piece that drove it. Back in Avonlea, is how many people kept on pointing out Gilbert to her, pushing that's her. That's really true. Yeah, comparing their scores. Now and, that they're in a
1: bigger pond, no one cares. They're just two people from the same hometown.
0: Right, right. Nobody knows their backstory, and Anne is also growing up a little bit. and begins to wish that maybe they could be friends. She sees him hanging out with Ruby and realizes what she's lost by not cultivating a more friendly relationship with him. She also makes new friends, Priscilla Grant and Stella Maynard who are described as being as ambitious and hardworking as Anne. Priscilla is fun and spirited. Stella is a romantic dreamer like Anne. So it's also nice to see that as Anne has moves out of Avonlea, she is also finding other kindred spirits out in the world.
1: And she couldn't hang out with Josie Pye all year anyway.
0: Oh, please. Definitely not. Anne hangs out a little bit with Aunt Josephine. She has Sunday dinners and goes to church with her. And the year zips by until the final exams are upon Anne. Spurred by the hope of receiving a scholarship or other prize, she studies her tail off. And when exams are over, she's comforted by the thought of going back home to Green Gables. When the exam results are released, Anne learns that she has won the Avery Prize, which includes a scholarship to go to Redmond College, which is a traditional college where she could obtain a Bachelor of Arts. Gilbert has also done well, and he earned the gold medal. They don't tell us what that means. Anne (laughs) returns to Green Gables triumphant with plans to attend college in the fall. Gilbert is unable to pay for college, so he is going to teach locally for a couple of years to save up money until he can go. Matthew and Marilla are thrilled and proud of Anne, but Anne also notices that they are both struggling with their health as they age. I
1: feel like my college days passed in about three chapters too, so that makes perfect sense to me.
0: I think so. It is definitely where she's like, okay, we just have to get to the next part. Yeah. <laughs> she goes to Queens. It was good. Next. Anne loved
1: college. She won prizes. (laughs) I have to point out before we move on, though, that there is just a wonderful moment when Marilla and Anne are packing up her things for the year. And Marilla keeps coming in with pretty dresses for Anne, which is such a turnabout from where they were before. And there's also a very poignant moment where Marilla starts crying a little bit, thinking of Anne leaving the house. And of course, Anne assures Marilla that she will always be her little Anne.
0: I love that.
1: Okay. So I'm just going to bravely move forward into the next chapter description. This is one of the hardest chapters. This is the one that I most often skip when I reread this book because Mm -hmm. it really is so heartbreaking. All right. Well, I am here for you and we'll (laughs) tag team if we need to. Thank you, friend. It starts quite abruptly. Matthew suffers a heart attack and dies right on the porch of Green Gables with Marilla and Anne standing inside just on the other side of the threshold. There's something about that image uh-huh. of Matthew standing outside on the porch and Marilla and Anne standing, I guess, sort of in the entryway. And they're separated by the door that I think is really poignant. And Maud is doing interesting things here with the thought of death as crossing over. And she's really using this doorway metaphor importantly here. So Merlin and Anne kind of hope that he had just fainted. They call the hired hand to go get the doctor. Mrs. Rachel somehow finds her way over. This is not of course really. She does. <laughs> of course she does. But she says, you know, that despite their hopes, they really had only to look at Matthew's face to know that he had indeed passed. The doctor does come and confirms as much. And he gives his opinion that Matthew's heart gave out from shock because they also learned at the same time that Abbey Bank, where the Cuthberts had kept their money, had gone under. Because Avonlea is such a special place, Anne and Marilla are immediately surrounded by the love of their friends and neighbors who've come to show support with food and flowers and company. And then strangely, in what seems like a role reversal for Anne and Marilla, stoic Marilla is emotional and tearful and Anne finds that she cannot cry at all. And she just aches at the loss of Matthew. But then at night, Anne finally does break down, and Marilla hears Anne sobbing and comes to her room to comfort her. Anne says to Marilla through tears, it's our sorrow, yours and mine. Oh, Marilla, what will we do without him? And Marilla says to her, well, we've got each other, Anne. I don't know what I'd do if you weren't here, if you'd never come. Oh, Anne, I know I've been kind of strict and harsh with you, maybe. But you mustn't think that I didn't love you as well as Matthew did for all that. I want to tell you now while I can. It's never been easy for me to say things out of my heart, but at times like this, it's easier. I love you as dear as if you were my own flesh and blood. And you've been my joy and my comfort ever since you came to Green Gables.
0: (laughs) That passage does that to me every time, too, because I think one of the beautiful things that Matthew did even though he was so quiet was he was able to be the heart for Anne the way that Marilla was was the head yeah in in the family and he was the softness and Marilla was the structure with his loss that Marilla is able to sort of become both for Anne
1: yeah yeah Marilla is able to learn the lessons that Matthew taught her about how to be the person that Anne needs. Yes. So together they bury Matthew and they learn that even when the most special people die, life still carries on. Anne experiences that horrible part of grief where you just have to keep living your life and maybe even finding joy and pleasure in things, all while feeling disloyal to the person that you've lost. Anne plants roses on Matthew's grave, the same rosebush that Matthew and Marilla's mother had brought over from Scotland. Later in the chapter, Marilla and Anne sit on the porch at Green Gables, and they tell stories and laugh about some of Anne's childhood mishaps. And They also discuss the future of the young people of Avonlea, with Anne off to Redmond in the fall, Josie, Moody, and Charlie heading back to Queens, and Ruby, Jane, and Gilbert all going to teach. Marilla sort of offhandedly mentions, that she once had a romance with Gilbert's father and that people in Avonlea called him her beau. Anne, who had never heard this, is delighted that once upon a time, Marilla had romance
0: in her life. You know that is just Anne Catnip right there. I think Anne
1: Catnip and reader Catnip, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very sweet note to end a very sad chapter
0: on. Yeah. Well, and you also can see how their relationship really opened, that this shared grief has brought them closer and and maybe taken down a wall with Marilla that has let her be vulnerable with Anne.
1: Marilla grieving with Anne kind of shows Anne how to take down a wall. So too, do you start to see Anne bend toward Gilbert Mm -hmm. um, in the chapter to come?
0: Marilla does share that she and Gilbert's father had a fight and she was too proud proud to apologize, and they never recovered from that. So we move into the final chapter. Marilla tells Anne that the eye doctor has prescribed her glasses, which she doesn't seem to be wearing a lot, to (laughs) prevent her from going, quote, stone blind. And that if she doesn't wear glasses, her eyesight can continue to deteriorate and she could experience permanent loss of her vision. Anne reflects on the events of the past few months, she decides to turn down the scholarship and stay home to take care of Marilla. Anne works out a plan to rent their farm to Diana's dad and apply to the Avonlea School or one of the other schools in the area that could be near enough she could commute. Marilla, of course, says Anne cannot put her education on hold, but Anne holds to her plan resolutely. Anne explains that she's heart-glad to stay at Green Gables, that no one loves it like she and Marilla do, and they cannot give it up. Marilla gives in and news that Anne was going to give up going to college to teach and care for Marilla spreads through the town. Anne's closest mentors, Mrs. Allen and Mrs. Rachel, are happy for her, knowing that she's chosen a path of selflessness that will bring comfort to Anne and Marilla both. Mrs. Rachel also tells Anne that the school trustees were going to give the Avonlea School to Gilbert until he requested that Anne have it, and he would take the White Sands School instead. Anne is shocked and pleased and runs over to Diana's house while Mrs. Rachel and Marilla comment on how the now adult Anne still has some of her child self. On her way back from the cemetery the next day, Anne meets Gilbert and she thanks him for giving her the Avonlea school. He asks once again if they can be friends and she tells him she forgave him long ago when he rescued her from the pond and has been sorry ever since for not telling himself. Gilbert is jubilant. And he tells her they'll be the best of friends. They can keep up their studies together while they teach. They're both hoping to keep up using correspondence courses so they can enter Redmond not too far behind. He walks her home and Marilla Riley observes that they spend half an hour at the garden gate talking, causing Anne to blush. Anne goes to bed feeling satisfied with her place in the world, caring for Marilla, teaching at the Avonlea School, and finally friends with Gilbert Blythe.
1: It's such a satisfying resolution to the book. I think that the last few chapters also really demonstrate how much Anne has grown up. And I was reflecting on Anne's earlier expressed wish as a child. She's asking Matthew, would you rather be beautiful, clever, or good? And by this point in the book, you see that Anne has become all three.
0: Yes. You and see she that- says- early on she could never decide which of of the three and she has given up hope of being beautiful she kind of despairs of being good and she's not quite sure whether or not she's clever and you're right at this point now she is shown in all of the ways how she's all of those things
1: and I think what's really lovely in this last chapter is the folks who know her best Mrs. Allen and Mrs. Rachel you know, they don't see this as a tragedy or as Anne giving up some opportunity that she could never get back. They know that Anne is resilient and will and will bounce back, but they also know that Anne's truest happiness is going to be in caring for Marilla and giving back to the person who gave Anne everything.
0: Well, and you see a little bit of, you don't realize it at the time, but this foreshadowing coming true at the beginning, when Matthew is arguing for keeping Anne, he says to Marilla, and she'll be company for you. She says, I don't need any company. And here, that prediction has proved true. She did need company. She did need Anne. Yeah. Really just a,
1: a beautiful ending um, and very emotional ending. But of course, we get many more delicious books and get to learn all about Anne's future exploits. And I can't wait to jump into that with you.
0: Yes, and I can't wait to explore more about each of the characters in the book and go more in depth with all of the nuances and all of the layers that Maud has so cleverly woven throughout what seems like a simple story of a young girl Mm -hmm. growing up. Since we've run pretty long in this
1: episode, I'm going to do a very quick Inspired by Anne My inspired by Anne, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, but it is brown dresses with puff sleeves. They are everywhere. Go to Madewell, you will find five. Go to Target, you will find 10. (laughs) If you were ever wanting to live out your Anne of Green Gables fantasies, the time is summer 22. Brown puff sleeve fantasy. Absolutely. Um
0: Cottage (laughs) core.
1: Cottage core
0: all the way. (laughs) Yes. Well, I also have a quick inspired by Anne fashion recommendation, which is I have a lovely little Anne of Green Gables book necklace that is so sweet. It looks like a very tiny miniature copy of Anne of Green Gables strung on a silver chain. I got mine off Etsy from a seller called. Oh, it's uh, so cute. Isn't it cute? It's so cute. It's called tiny book town and they do a whole bunch of like you could find probably your favorite classic book. They've oh, got Jane Eyre this. and Pride and Prejudice and Wuthering Heights and Matilda. They've got
1: all so the of- book pendant itself is like the cover of the book. OK, well, this is <laughs> I think between these and our brown dresses with puff sleeves, we will be all decked out in our Anne of Green Gables finery. Thank you all so much for tuning in with us today on this most recent episode of Kindred Spirits Book Club. Look out for future episodes when we will start breaking down some of the character relationships and major themes in Green Gamers.